You are listening to the Dr. Michelle Corral Show. It is our prayer that as you listen to these podcasts, that you will receive your deliverance, breakthrough, anointing, and highest destiny. Our prayer is that your love for Jesus Christ be first in your life above all things. Now, here's Dr. Corral. for everyone that is a Christian. Every person who has received Christ has received the anointing. The Bible says the anointing you have received of him. So you've already got the anointing when you receive Christ, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. Say it with me. The anointing you have received, past tense, of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you. Why? Because Christian means anointed one. In Greek, Christ is the Christus, the anointed one. That's what it means. In Hebrew, he is the Mashiach, which means the anointed one. So every Christian that walks as Jesus walks, walks in the anointing. So there is a deposit of the anointing in every believer. But I want you to know, there are different levels of the anointing. There are different types of anointing. And it's up to you whether you want to pay the price for the anointing. Because all of the ingredients that we saw right here in the anointing, which are prophetically prefigured in the properties of power, the properties of purpose, the princely properties, the priestly properties, and the prophetic properties that are in the anointing have a price to pay to it. And you might say, Dr. Corral, what is that price? All right. Well, we see 500 shekels of myrrh, 500 shekels of cassia, 250 shekels of sweet cinnamon, and 250 shekels of sweet cane. I want to explain. This is not just about monetary value, but this is about a price that every one of us here must pay if we want that greater anointing in our life. Catherine Kuhlman always said, the anointing does not come cheap. She said, there's a price to pay for the anointing. There is a price to pay and it's going to cost you something. Catherine Kuhlman always said, it'll cost you everything that you've got. So every person who is willing to be sold out for God, every person who is willing to die to themselves, every person who is willing to lay their own will on the altar and be filled with the will of God is a candidate for the supernatural stratosphere of the highest anointing that God wants to give to you. Can I get a witness somewhere? I have filled my servant David with my holy oil, my Shemenachadosh. Have I anointed him? Now watch this. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor shall the son of wickedness afflict him. Now watch what this says in verse 27. I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. That's what we want to focus on right now. The Bible says, I will make him my firstborn. So we're going to see, we know in a literal sense of scripture, that David was the seventh born son of Jesse. The Bible tells us this, beloved, in uh, 1 
Chronicles chapter 2, verse 15, that he was the seventh son of Jesse. Yet the Bible says, I'm going to make him my firstborn. Just like the anointing gives you the spiritual status of the firstborn. Why? Because the firstborn were consecrated and separated unto God. Touch your neighbor and say, there's no in between. Everything that the anointing touches separates and consecrates unto God. Because everything that the anointing touches belongs to another world. Say this with me. Everything that the anointing touches belongs to another world. Touch your neighbor and say, I'm not of this world. Hallelujah. And when the anointing comes on you, you are consecrated and separated to another world. This is the whole purpose of separating and anointing everything in the tabernacle. God gave Moses specific instructions in Exodus chapter 40. He said, you shall take the anointing oil and you shall anoint the tabernacle and all that is therein. And God went through specific order according to the order of the the, of holiness, according to the order of what comes first, what comes second, what comes third. We have to have that spiritual discernment that is part of discerning of spirits to know when there is something so holy. And we have to know the protocol on how to um, um, uh, be in the anointing and how to honor God in the anointing, how to reverence God in the anointing. I can't get any help in here because it belongs to another world. So the protocol is extremely important. And God sets that protocol by putting all things in the tabernacle in divine order. Let's look at that for a moment. Touch your neighbor and say, Lord, I want to, uh, neighbor, I want you to learn how to set the protocols in power of the anointing. Say this with me. Holy Ghost, teach me the protocols of power. Let's look at an example of the protocols of power because this is the secret of how the anointing operates. Go with me to Exodus chapter 40 and you and I will see the protocols of power beginning with the tabernacle. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 40, if you will look at it with me, the tabernacle could not be set up on the fifth day. The tabernacle could not be set up on the 10th day. The tabernacle could not be set up on the 30th day or on the 5th month or on the 10th month or in the 12th month. No, the tabernacle had to be set up on the first day of the first month because it represents the most important thing is setting up the tabernacle. Touch your neighbor and say, if you don't know how to set the tabernacle in your own life, the anointing is not second choice. Say this with me. The anointing has to come first. It is part of the protocols of Power. The anointing can't be something you pick and choose. The anointing is not something that you can take or leave. The anointing must be positioned in its place of priority. This is called the protocols of power. Can I get a witness somewhere? And this is why so many of us miss it. Okay, we miss it. We miss the anointing because we don't understand 
how to position the power of God in its proper place. So God has given a commandment here. Let's look. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 40, verse 1, the Bible says the Lord spoke to Moses on the first day of the first month and said, you will set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Now, I want you to know something in a historic sense of scripture. The tabernacle was already ready to be assembled, okay? It was already in Exodus 38, verse 21. The Bible tells us that everything was counted out. Everything was already ready to be assembled. And this was months before the first month. It was at the end of the previous year. But God did not allow Moses to assemble it until the first day of the first month. Why? Because the year has to start out with the anointing as priority. We have to put the ark in the forefront. We have to allow the anointing to lead us into the promised land. We've got to allow the anointing to lead us into the destiny that God has ordained for us. We cannot get to the promised land without understanding how to position that anointing in its place of priority in our lives. Can I get a witness somewhere? All right. So we have this. Now, I want you to see that the text here is consistent with placing the anointing in its position of power. The Bible says, if we look at the scripture, verse 3, and you will put therein the ark of the testimony and cover the ark with the veil. Now, first of all, we need to know, notice that Moses is going to be very specific. If we read this in the natural and do not understand what Moses is trying to communicate to us, that is not dead history, that is personal, powerful, prophetic, and relevant. Every word in the Bible is God's word. There is nothing in the Bible that's irrelevant. Everything in the Bible is alive. This is not some dead historical thing that is past. This is something we can activate right now if we understand the author's intent. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to say, Holy Ghost, give me the author's intent. Because all of those authors of scripture were moved by the Holy Ghost. And all of those authors of scripture wrote the Bible in inerrancy and power. All right, so we need to understand this, dear saints of God. Let's look at these protocols of power. The scripture says you're going to put there in the ark of the testimony. What does this mean, putting in the ark of the testimony first? Notice you don't put the vessels in first. Notice you don't put in the candelabra first, or you don't put in the menorah first. You don't put in the table of showbread first. The very first thing that goes in is the ark because it, it, it is the top priority. And so everything is going to be mentioned not to bore us, not to let us see, oh, that's something dead in the Old Testament that we don't have to pay attention to. I want you to know that it is prophetic. Everything in God's word has purpose. There is nothing in God's word that we throw out. Everything in God's word is relevant. This is the holy word of God, and it lives forever, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is alive, and it is powerful. Can I get a witness? Say, I can still be ministered to. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to give God the glory. So we are seeing here that Moses is going to go into depths to go out of his way to itemize for us 
all of the furnishings that go into the tabernacle in the concept of what we call Kedusha. What is holy is first, what is holy is second, what is holy is third, and what is least holy. We need to understand this, all right, because we have to have the discernment to know not everything is equal. There are some things that are holier than other things. And if we don't get this, we don't get the spiritual realm. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. If we miss this, we we miss the whole anointing. If we put everything on the same page, we missed it. Put your hands up right now and say, I don't want to miss it, Holy Ghost, because this destiny of 2020 is too important to me. Where God has taken me in 2020 is too critical for me to miss it. I got to have all the skill. I've got to have all the gifts. I've got to have all the power of God operating with clarity and with clearness. I can't miss it. Touch your neighbor and say, I can't miss it. Hallelujah. Your destiny is too important. You are too important. Your destiny matters too much to miss it over something that we don't understand. All right, so we need to put our carnal minds under subjection of the Holy Spirit because the greatest enemy to the anointing is the carnal mind. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. One of the reasons God gives us the gift of tongues is because our carnal mind doesn't understand it. And the more we pray in tongues, the more of an individual we're going to be that learns to depend on things we cannot see and things we do not understand. I'm going to tell you a little story here for a moment about praying in tongues and how important it is because we as saints of God oftentimes underestimate the power of praying in tongues. Years ago, there was a man who was a pastor whose child was in a, a terrible auto accident, man of God, young man just starting to preach the gospel, and he was hit by a drunk driver. He went into the hospital, and he was lying unconscious. His parents got there, and they said, there's no hope. They said his neck is broken, and his back is broken in two places. If he recovers and comes out of this coma, he is going to be nothing but a vegetable. He'll never walk again, or it will take years and years of therapy for him to get anywhere. Well, his father, being a pastor, just believed God, and he did not leave his room except for just a few moments at a time. But he stayed in that room, and the whole time, for three solid days, four solid days, five solid days, Six solid days, seven solid days, till it came to almost two weeks. All he did was pray in tongues. And you know something? He didn't pray out loud because he was in the he was in an ICU unit. He didn't disturb other people. He just stayed there and he prayed in tongues. After the short period was over, of that papa staying there and praying in tongues. The doctors had told him, get ready for your son to be paralyzed. He's got his neck broken and back broken in two places. When the young man came out of the coma, his daddy said, try to move your feet. He began to move his toes. 
began to move his legs, began to move his feet. He began to move his arms. And he said, Daddy, I'm healed. Daddy, I'm healed. The doctors, the doctors could not believe it. They took him into x-ray to x-ray his back. And the scars remained where the auto accident had occurred, but it appeared as if it were an accident that occurred many years before. The scars were there, but the child was, the young man was totally healed. You see the power of praying in tongues. I hope somebody understands what I'm talking about. Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. And God is bringing the church now into a time that we're learning how to depend on the supernatural more than we're depending on the natural. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. And so this is why the natural mind doesn't understand the protocols of power. The natural mind, it will, it will rebel against the protocols of power. But God set these protocols of power up here in the book of Exodus to show us. And until everything was in its place in the tabernacle, the anointing oil could not go on it. You see, the anointing cannot fall till everything's in its proper position and everything's in its proper place according to the protocol the way God has ordained it to be. Notice how the text is, is um, systematically um, put here in, in methodical form. It says here in verse 3, you will, you will put in the ark, then it says in verse 4, and you will bring in the table and set in order the things that are to be set in order upon it. Say this with me, Holy Ghost, you are a God of order. Teach me the order of the spiritual realm. Teach me discerning of spirits. Open up my mind and my heart to the realm of the spirit and teach me things that I cannot see with my natural eye. Teach me how to sense with my spirit man. Teach me how to understand with the inward man that is in me. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to give God the praise. Thou shalt set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put the hanging of the door of the tabernacle and thou shalt set the altar of the burnt offering. Notice how everything is being set. Now watch, after everything's in its place, verse 9. Notice it doesn't say you're going to anoint everything just right off the top. No, there's an order here. There's a protocol for power. Some Christians wonder why the anointing cannot stay on them. They come to church, they get anointed, they come to meetings, they feel the power of God, but they wonder why at home they don't have victory. Or they wonder why when they go out to minister, why there's not that power flowing. It is because there is a protocol. We have to put the anointing first. We have to put the power of God first. We have to put the things of God first. We have to put um, understanding this. And notice, Bible, uh, dear friends, that it says here, and you shall. Notice it's not till verse 9. It says, and you will take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is therein, and you shall hallow it, and all the vessels shall be holy. So everything that the anointing touches and the purpose of the anointing oil on, a, on, the, on the furnishings. It's not because that furnishing 
um, now has some kind of power that if you walk by it, you're going to fall into the power. No, that's not it. It means that the anointing on these furnishings has been separated for another world. That means everything the anointing touches, whether it's clothes or whether it's a body or whatever it is, that's why people that are healed and they're healed of sicknesses, when they're healed of great diseases and great illnesses, they've got to know, child, once you're healed, you now have a responsibility to be used of God and let God use that testimony. Let God use you in the ministry. Let God use you to pray for other people that are sick. Let God use your hands, your feet, your eyes. You now have a responsibility before God because the power of God has touched you. Now your life is separated unto the Lord. Can I get a witness somewhere? You see, this is what happened to Betty Baxter. When Betty Baxter was healed, those of you who know the story of the Betty Baxter story, um, in the 1940s, this goes back a pretty long time, this woman who was born with so many illnesses, multiple illnesses, epilepsy, twisted spine, could never even lift her head. She had problem with her intestines, an enlarged heart. She couldn't even wear clothing. She had to have a sheet over her body. As she was a young girl, she was in a wheelchair. She could never walk. And um, when she was a little bit older, when she was a young girl, maybe I think it must have been around when she was 18 or 19, she had died and gone to heaven and Jesus sent her back. And um, she, um, her mother was not baptized in the Holy Ghost yet, but her mother read her the New Testament every single day. And her mother asked her pastor, um, if Jesus healed then, I've been reading to my daughter Betty, can he heal now? And the pastor said, no, that was only for the time of the Bible. But the mother continued to believe God because she, she realized that God cannot lie in his word. The promises of God are yea and amen to him that believe it. So she continued to read to Betty the word of God every single day. And Betty got so sick that she was admitted into the hospital. And again, she, she almost died. And the, the pastor t told the mother, you got to better get ready, comfort all the family, don't get her all excited, because she, the doctors have already said she's going to go. So they called all the loved ones from all the family to come in, because they expected Betty to go home to be with the Lord. And they've had a whole lot of other close calls all throughout Betty's life. This is the way Betty lived. And when the mama went out, when Betty was hanging between life and death, she had a visitation from heaven. And that visitation came, Jesus came so powerfully to her. And Jesus said, Betty, I'm not going to take you now. And she had already asked the Lord while she was in that bed. She made a bargain with God. And the bargain was, Lord, if you heal me, I'll serve you every day for the rest of my life. And I will tell my testimony every single day, wherever I am. I will serve you for the rest of my life telling my testimony. She made a bargain with him. And Jesus spoke to Betty on that bed and said, Betty, I'm going to come down and I'm going to visit you. And he told her the date and he told her the time. It was in August. I don't remember the date in August, but he told her the date. You can just go on the Betty Baxter story on the internet and find out. 
He told her the date and he told her the time. And he told her mother the same thing. And the Lord said, don't tell anybody that I'm going to heal you on that day. And Betty got so excited. She didn't know what to tell her mother because her mother was her best friend. Her mother was with her through thick and thin. And when her mother came into the room, she slipped. And her mother said, oh, Betty, I know you're going to be healed. And Betty said, did Jesus tell you too? And the times were exactly the same. And then Betty got up out of the hospital, but she wasn't healed because the Lord said a certain day was a few weeks down the line. So Betty's mother told the pastor. The pastor got pretty upset because they didn't believe in divine healing. And so the mother decided to wait for Jesus in the house because Jesus told him the time and Jesus told him the hour. So she invited a few family members to come. They made folding chairs in the living room sitting down waiting for Jesus with Betty's wheelchair right there. Betty never having lifted her head, never lifted her head once in her life. Her neck was totally, totally bent over. She was bent over like this. She could never even look up with all of her intestines and all of her heart. And the hour came that Jesus said he was going to come. And all of a sudden into that room came a wind. It came blowing into that room, and everybody heard the wind, but nobody saw Jesus but Betty. As she looked down, she saw two nail print feet that were standing before her, and everybody in the room heard the spine cracking when Betty's back began to straighten up. And she said for the first time when she looked into Jesus' eyes, she said it was worth everything that she'd ever been through in her life. And Betty ended up standing tall and standing for, hallelujah, being completely healed. And Betty was one of the main um, individuals that laid hands on the sick in Oral Roberts' tent meetings all throughout Oral Roberts' ministry. You see, let me just tell you, saints, if you're healed, there's a responsibility. Because when the anointing touches something, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to another world. And everything that the anointing touches belongs to another world. Raise your hand and say, Lord, I belong to that other world. And I want to understand that other world. Lord God, I want to understand the protocols of power in my life. Can I get a witness somewhere? Hallelujah. So I want you to know today that God has got your back. Hallelujah, that the anointing is upon you. And this is how God anointed Esther. The Bible tells us that that anointing oil was upon her. And because the anointing oil was upon her, she was prepared for war. Now I'm going to conclude this message with two supernatural strategies that are on Esther's life that we need to look at in the art of war. And the very first supernatural strategy that I want you to see is the supernatural strategy of anticipation and expectation of knowing what the enemy is going to do before he does it. Put your hands up right now and say, I want to know my enemy, and I want the supernatural anticipation and expectation that whatever the enemy tries to do, I will have Holy Ghost information before because I know my enemy. Somebody ought to praise the Lord. 
It is said in, military, in the military manual, the art of war, that the first strategy of war is to know your enemy. And, and Esther knew her enemy. This is demonstrated in Esther chapter 2, verse 21. Now, I want you to understand something. In the book of Esther, whenever Esther is going to make a strategic move in, in strategy and skill, to bring down Haman, the, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, there is a particular title that the scripture gives to Esther. She has three names in the book of Esther. She has the name Hadassah, she has the name Esther, and she has the name Esther the queen. Esther the queen, not Queen Esther, but Esther the queen is used only in specific junctures in the text where her particular action is going to either display a supernatural strategy in the art of war that's going to bring down Amalek, bring down Haman, or it is something in the future that will affect the downfall of Haman. I want you to know that once the death decree was written, it only took three days to bring down Haman. Now, it didn't take three days for the Jews to have the victory over their enemies. That took much longer. But it only took three days to bring down Haman. And this is a prophetic parallel of the resurrection. I want you to understand that once, hallelujah, you and I understand the power of the resurrection. The Bible says in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, having spoiled principalities, the Bible says in verse 14, having uh, destroyed and blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, putting them out of the way by the nailing of those ordinances to the cross. Then the Bible says in verse 15, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made an open display of them, triumphing over them in it. So you and I need to know that the cross and the resurrection has defeated every spirit of Amalek, has destroyed every enemy. That is why it only took three days for Haman to come down. Can I get a witness of the spirit? So we need to understand this, dear people of God. And we need to see that the Bible tells us, uh, if, we, if we look at the scripture, the scripture will show us on the 13th of Nisan, the death decree was written and it was nailed to the post. And then we're going to see that that was actually um, Arab pa Passover. Then we're going to see on the 14th of Nisan, this is the second day of Esther's fast. On the, third, on the 15th of Nisan is when Esther came before the king with her first request, all right? And so we're going to see that on the 16th of Nisan, remember the death decree was written on the 13th of Nisan, but on the 16th of Nisan was the second night of the banquet and Haman was already dead. Put your hands up right now and say it only took three days. Say this with me in the name of Jesus. I claim the power of the resurrection over every wicked spirit, over every principality, over every power. In the mighty name of Jesus, give God praise and give God glory. 
praise and give God glory. Shout the victory. Hallelujah. Now, beloved people, I want you to see the strategy and skill of Esther. Number one, she was one step ahead of her enemy because she knew her enemy. And we see this the first time that the scripture records in Esther 2, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, that, um, that there was a, an assassination attempt against the king, and she certified it in the, king, in the name of Mordecai and wrote it in the Chronicles of the King. For Mordecai's, for it to be known that Mordecai was the one who foiled the attack. What does this have to do with knowing your enemy? Because she knew in the palace there was a man by the name of Haman who would have taken the credit for the foiling of that assassination attempt. She did not go to the king and say, it was Mordecai, it was Mordecai. No, she just gracefully wrote it and certified it, Mordecai's name, and later it came when the time came for the king to read the chronicles of what took place on the night that the king could not sleep, it was identified that it was Mordecai that did it. This is why the scripture says in verse 21, if we look at the scripture in Esther, I want you to see it because Esther the queen is being used. And the scripture tells us here in Esther chapter 2, and I want us to see this clearly. In Esther chapter 2, the scripture says in verse 21, In those days Mordecai sat in the king's gate, and two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those of which kept the door, which were wroth and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it to Esther the queen. So here we see Esther the queen being used, okay? Because she's making a strategic move in a, a, a sense of military, um, moving forward in the things of God to bring down Haman. Do you all see that? Okay, and let's look at a second place that we're going to see um, the strategic um, art of warfare here. We're going to see the second place is going to be in the actual day that she brings her request to the king, and that's found in Esther chapter 5. And in Esther chapter 5, we see now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on royalty. She didn't just, that word apparel does not appear in the Hebrew language. The Bible says she put on royalty and she stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the scripture says in verse 2, and it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing that she obtained favor in his sight. Now we're going to see that she's not going to reveal any emotions. She's not going to reveal anything. She's not going to go um, and plead with the king in an emotional sense and immediately plead for her people. She's not going to do that. She's not going to let the enemy know her intention because Esther's strategy is a surprise attack against Haman. She's going to lead them in another direction. So what she's going to do is a classic act 
of strategic warfare. She is going to turn the king against Haman and Haman against the king. She is going to break up the ungodly agreement and break up the ungodly unity. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. So notice the way that she presents her request. Say this with me. Holy Ghost, give me the anointing and the strategies and art of spiritual warfare to know how to break up ungodly agreements in the name of Jesus, how to break up, hallelujah, that which is not pleasing to God. So here we see, notice the way she's going to launch her attack in a very subtle way. She's not going to let the enemy know her intention because she's not going to give away her emotions. All right. The Bible says, and Esther answered, if it seemed good to the king and to um, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet, which I have prepared for him. Notice she says here. If it seemed good to the king, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which really should be, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I prepared for you. But she doesn't say that. She says, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I prepared for him. And the reason she says that I prepared for him is she already knows the terrain in which she's treading. You see, one of the secrets of the art of war is if you don't know the terrain, you could lose the war. If you don't know what kind of ground you're treading on, you can be treading in mountains, you got to be an expert in mountain climbing. If you're tre treading the terrain um, in marshland, you've got to be an expert skill on how to wade through the marshland. Esther knew how to tread the terrain of the palace because she was well aware of all of the um, intrigue in the palace. She was well aware of the personality problems that each person had because she had what was called sacral. Sacral is a gift that comes from the Holy Spirit in terms of wisdom. When a person walks in integrity and when a person walks in character, when a person walks in righteousness, God rewards those individuals with sacral. This is what David had. The Bible says David behaved himself wisely in all of his ways, and he avoided out of Saul's presence twice. Why? Because of his integrity, his character, and the honor in which he carried himself that he was able to have that sacral. That sacral was given to Esther. So she was able to tread the terrain. She knew the palace intrigue. She knew that Haman was drunk with wanting to be king. She knew that Haman was drunk with his own power and that he was already had his eyes on the title of the king. And already suspicions had been raised in the heart of the king the way Haman was, and especially the night that the king could not sleep. Those suspicions were raised to another level because when the king asked Haman what should be done to the man that the king desires to honor, Haman thought to himself, who does the king want to honor more than me? All right, so she laid out a sudden strike 
that was going to go against Haman. And it began with turning the king on Haman and Haman on the king. Can we get a witness somewhere? Touch your neighbor and say, know the terrain that you're treading. Know where your feet are getting ready to enter into that warfare. Tread the terrain with wisdom. Tread the terrain with, with discernment. Tread the terrain softly so that you might know exactly where your enemy is and how your enemy operates. Know your enemy. Somebody ought to say, know your enemy. Thank you for joining us today. It is our prayer that this word broke bondages and will open doors for you. If you have never received Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, invite him now to be your Lord and Savior and best friend. Repeat this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be the Lord of my life. Wash me clean from all my sins. I accept you as my personal Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon.